Well, let me turn our attention to the scriptures. We're going to read uh, two sets of uh, very short passages from 1 Timothy and from Hebrews chapter 6. We've been in this series that we're calling The School of Hope. And today our theme is Jesus, our hope. And I want to show you where that comes from. Uh, first, it's found in the opening two verses of a little book called 1 Timothy, which is a letter that Paul wrote. And then we'll read from Hebrews 6. Let's do this together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then from Hebrews 6, this is in the English Standard Version. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray for a moment. God, our Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather in this place to sing in an attempt to worship you, whether we sing well or whether we sing poorly, because praise goes right to your heart. And we recognize that even on our worst days, there are still so many things we are thankful for. The beauty of this world around us, the creative abilities of people you've surrounded us with, the air to breathe, sunsets and mountainscapes and seashores that every once in a while take our breath away and remind us of how small we are, of how grand your design is. Thank you for grace, for the many things you've forgiven us already. Thank you for the grace to live in a land that is free, for the grace to live out our faith day by day. Thank you for your word so that we can read in our own language or languages even and discover and probe the depths of your wisdom, to seek out promises that you've made to your people, and to trust in them, to trust in you. Thank you, thank you for walking with us day by day. There are many people in this room that start every day first thing talking with you. Thank you for the ways that you answer back through your word, through an answer that's provided, through words of wisdom from a friend, through a nudge or a whisper in those quiet times of prayer or reflection when you seem to just point us on a new path. God, we continue to lift up those who are around us, who work in, in government. We live in times that seem confusing and at times turbulent and where people are more divided than pray, uh, perhaps ever, but certainly in recent memory. We pray for our government leaders all the way up to the president's office and the Supreme Court and 
and uh, both sides of Congress. We pray that you would govern through these systems and these people, and that you would speak to the hearts of them so they would do what's right day in and day out, week in and week out for this nation and for the world. I pray for those who are part of our church family who are struggling with age, health problems, sickness. It's a delight to see Kathy here this morning so quickly after her surgery, and thank you for bringing her through that. We continue to pray long-term for Karen and for Barb, and we thank you for days of victory, and we pray that you will continue to pour out your mercy and your power on those days that are really difficult. I think this week of, of Beth Pugner, who's going through some pretty strong cancer treatments herself. Thank you for friendship with James and Beth years ago, and, and we together ask that you would pour out your strength and your power in her life to bring healing and to preserve her life. Lord, there are unspoken needs that certainly are on the hearts are not far from our thoughts in this room. You know the pressures that are coming at work. You know the decisions that have to be made this week. You know the folks who have lost jobs or who are starting new jobs. You know the pleas that many parents have in this room for their children, either to walk on a straight path or to come back to your open arms. We have neighbors and friends and co-workers whose lives are messed up based on their background and sometimes their poor choices, and they need Jesus. Help us to say the right word at the right time and not the wrong word at the wrong time. We're capable of both, but we need your wisdom. Give us the boldness in the right moment and give us that sense when your spirit is telling us to just be quiet. And in the quiet spaces of this morning, speak to us through your word, in and around this message, and through our friends. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was about 16, my dad bought a boat he bought it because he loved fishing. But even more than that, he was struggling to reach my brother and me as we hit the middle and latter part of our high school years. And he thought it would create a common bond. It was something that we could do together. And he was struggling to find a way to stay involved and to stay in touch with us. He was afraid he was losing us. For my dad, this was a big deal. My dad hadn't grown up boating. In fact, my dad grew up very poor during the Great Depression. And so the thought of buying a boat was an extravagance. And really, it delighted him to do this. Now, I have to tell you something about this boat. It, it was not a world beater of a boat. It was a 16-foot fiberglass runabout with a 60-horse Johnson motor on the back. Just strong enough to get us out into the ocean to fish, not strong enough to pull either my brother and I up when we would water ski. But we still tried. And uh, not knowing any better, I learned to water ski in Quincy Bay. <laughs> and sometimes we'd water ski in the back river between Hingham and Weymouth, and we had a lot of fun with that. 
My dad bought that boat for $1,000. So you know, there has to be a story. If you've got a, a boat that runs and that can last several years for $1,000, here's the story. This particular boat was for sale for that price at the marina because it had gone down in a Labor Day storm. It had either come loose from its mooring or the anchor at the bottom of that mooring didn't hold. And in the midst of those, one of those really bad Labor Day storms that hit, this thing went down to the bottom of Hingham Harbor and it sat there for about three weeks until it was pulled up. The original owner of the boat didn't want it anymore, so he sold it to the marina for next to nothing. And they put an ad in the paper and my dad saw the ad and he jumped on that boat. Before he bought it though, he talked to the, the owner of the marina and the guy said, I, I think that I can restore this thing to the point where it runs and I think I can rebuild the engine. But it, it's kind of iffy, so I'm selling it to you for $1,000 as is. I love the as is character of that boat. It was pitted all over the place. All the hardware had this uh, salt infested uh, pits and no matter how much we tried to polish it or rub them off, it was there permanently. And eventually they got the, the engine to run where it was, you know, it was just strong enough, never quite full power, but it worked. I, th I was thinking of that boat as I was thinking about this particular message today because that particular boat and owning it meant that my dad had taken a chance on a boat that somebody else had given up on. A boat that had broken free from an anchor or an anchor that didn't hold in the midst of one of the largest storms that he had seen. I wanted to begin with that story because there is a hope that the Bible describes as, quote, the anchor for the, for the soul, firm and secure. And here's the point, when the storms of life hit you, you need to be ready. And there's only one anchor that is sure and true for the human soul that can carry you through life. And the Bible tells us that anchor is Jesus. So we've been working our way through several weeks of this hope series, coming to the point where we talk about Jesus as our hope. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Bishop Desmond Tutu once said, hope is the ability to see light despite all of the darkness. A first century Christian known as Tertullian had a similar thought. He said, hope is patience with the lamp lit. In other words, it looks dark all around, but we still light the light, hoping to see what God is about to do next. If you're just getting started here at North River, let me quickly bring you up to speed. During the first two months of 2019, we've been working through this series, The School of Hope. And The School of Hope has focused on biblical insights giving, given to us by a variety of fascinating people from the Bible, including Abraham and Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, Job, and then last week, King David. But the Christian's greatest source of hope always comes from knowing, trusting, and drawing near to Jesus. So here's the, the main idea. If you remember nothing else, just get this. Jesus is our hope, the anchor that we can trust today, tomorrow, and forever. Let, let me walk you through four movements where we see Jesus as our hope. Here, here's the first way. He's our compass in confusing times. Paul writes these words in the opening greeting to this letter to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. 
to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is an interesting greeting. It's the only time that Paul starts a letter off this way. There are several times Paul begins a letter and he says words something like, uh, grace, peace, and mercy to you in the name of the Father and the Son. But this is the only time that he uses this phrase of Christ Jesus our hope. And I think there's a reason for that. Let me unpack what's going on here at the beginning of this letter. And I think you'll come to understand why he began with that designation of Christ as our hope. This letter was written to Timothy, who was a young pastor in the church that was in the city of Ephesus. It was one of the earliest churches known to Christianity. The apostle Paul was the writer. Paul was one of the most influential first century church leaders. Paul had received his commission to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to non-Jewish people directly from a personal encounter with Jesus long after the resurrection. Paul was likely somewhere around 30 years or more senior to Timothy, and he had been training Timothy for ministry. Timothy uh, may have been young, but he had been installed as the pastor of this church in Ephesus by Paul and others, knowing that Timothy would give that group of people his heart and soul. Paul also knew Ephesus and the church in Ephesus rather well. Ephesus, you should know, is, was an important city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire with some 250,000 people living there. Having briefly visited Ephesus early in his missionary church planting work, Paul and Timothy had then returned during what's known as Paul's third missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 19 if you want to get more of the backdrop of what was going on here. This time, Paul had stayed for two years teaching and developing the elders and the pastors in the church there. The relationship was so strong that when Paul left, which Acts 20 records, there was this tearful, long goodbye. They didn't want to see him go and he didn't want to go, but he had to get on to the next city. He had this Bill Belichick mindset, on to the next place. The next game was about to happen. Timothy was an interesting young man. His mother was a Jewish believer in Jesus, and his father was a Greek who, from all indications, was not a Christian at all. And Timothy had come to assist Paul as a protege, and then finally as a young pastor that Paul had great confidence in. And he had come to be the pastor in this burgeoning church in the city of Ephesus. This would not prove to be an easy assignment. One of the main reasons why it wasn't an easy assignment was that the dominant religion in the city of Ephesus centered on Diana, the goddess of the hunt and fertility. The city of Ephesus itself was filled with icons or idols of Diana that were basically like the porn of that day. True confession, I made a mistake years ago. I was teaching through the book of Ephesus and I wanted people to understand and, and so I, I found this picture online of, of the goddess of Diana. And let's just say that it exposed a number of, of female parts and I thought people ought to see that. So we had it up here on the screen, large and living, only we left it up there for way too long. And there are a whole bunch of ladies who said, it's fine that you showed that, but did you have to leave it up there for so long? So we're not going to inflict that on you. I learned my lesson years ago. But you get the picture of, of just how bizarre this was. 
The temple of Diana, also known as Artemis in the Roman system of gods, was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the people of Ephesus were proud of their goddess. Each year, the farmers and shepherds would go to the temple of, of Diana of the Ephesians in order to have sex with one of the temple prostitutes with the hope that the goddess would bless the crops and the flocks so the farmers would have a great year, a productive year. Can you imagine just the bizarre nature of all that? The farmer says, honey, I'm going up to the temple. I'm going to be with one of the prostitutes for a little while. We're going to have a great year on the farm. And she's saying, yeah, right. This is a good thing. But that was their world and that was their system. Imagine what a breath of fresh air Christianity was when it broke in, that there was a God who loves people. There is a God who treats women as equal as he treats men. There was a God who brought balance into the moral systems of the world. There was a God who forgives people with colorful pasts. So Paul's words about Jesus or hope are noteworthy. It's not, they are not just lost words in the greeting that we should skip over. Something significant was being called to attention here when Paul wrote this greeting and he wrote about Christ Jesus, our hope. This is the only time that Paul uses this particular opening greeting in one of his letters. He wanted us to know that Jesus is our hope in the midst of a confused and confusing world. He wanted us to know that Jesus is our hope when moral and sexual boundaries are rejected by a society. And Jesus is our hope when young Christians find themselves in a majority, not only having to lead upward within the congregation, but having to lead outward into this confusing society. If you're young in faith and young in years, you need to realize this letter was written with people like you in mind. In short, Paul was not writing to some puritanical culture that was marked by Christendom. He was writing to a culture that is remarkably similar to all the shifting ground that we have seen in recent decades and years and probably will continue to see for some time in our lifetimes. Jesus is our hope, the anchor that we can trust today, tomorrow, forever. Here's the second discovery. His mercy transforms our past. People in the churches that Paul and Timothy were dealing with, and in this case, we're still here in, in the book of 1 Timothy, had colorful lives, colorful pasts. Sometimes people outside of the church think that we're all a bunch of goody-goodies in here who've lived very boring lives. But I have to tell you something. I've been pastor of this church for more than 29 years. And there are some very colorful people in this congregation. And there are some very colorful stories that we have lived through. And we don't hide that. It's, it's part of our grace story. It's part of what makes our faith so wonderful. It's part of what draws us to Jesus. So look at what Paul writes here, just a few verses later, same chapter. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that, if you have a pencil out, underline those two words, that means there's a purpose clause here, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In the paragraph just prior to these two verses, Paul had written about his earlier life. Rather than hiding his past, he noted that he had spoke blasphemously about Jesus. That means he did everything that he could to destroy the reputation of Jesus and his followers. He said things that he knew now were, no, were not true back when he was saying them. And then he added that he was a persecutor of Christians and a violent man. The book of Acts covers part of that story. Paul was one of the first to go after Christians, round them up, throw them into jail, sometimes even killing them. He stood there in approval when Stephen, one of the first deacons in the Jerusalem church, was stoned to death because of his faith. But Paul had been shown grace because he had acted in ignorance and in unbelief. And he knew the mercy of God. On the heels of that confession, Paul then made this powerful assertion. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You may or may not be aware of this, but there are some modern theologians and church leaders today who argue that Jesus primarily came to identify with groups of people, that he didn't come so much to die for your sins or for my sins, that we ought to leave that part of it out and we ought to talk about how he identified with all the downtrodden groups of people. You know how there's identity politics? This is identity theology that comes into play. And Paul's confession stands in stark contrast to this belief. He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. And in Paul's eyes, he was the worst because of what he'd done. Again, there are some who see Christians as people who see everyone else outside as sinners except ourselves. There are reasons why people have come to believe that. There are some Christians who've carried on that attitude, that, that kind of uh, persona uh, that we always get it right, that we have nothing to apologize for, and the world out there is going to hell in a handbasket. There are elements of truth to both sides of that, but that attitude is off-putting, and that attitude is wrong. Paul says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the worst. In other words, sinners like you and me. And what our world needs to know so badly is how we see ourselves, that we are people who are in need of grace. We are people who have that past. And we've not forgotten it. We're just trying to live into the new life that he gives us. Our hope is not based on the idea that we are better than other people and that God approves because we're so good. Our hope is centered in the reality that we've been shown undeserved mercy. Rather than being scandalized by our sins, God uses our mercy, you know, his mercy toward us as an example so that other people will realize that God's mercy is available to them too. It's one of the reasons why we tell faith stories around here from time to time, so, so that we get real and we also rejoice 
in the way that God brings healing and hope into our lives. The key step is that they must believe in Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life. That's what Paul says at the end of of verse 16. That Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe. In other words, he has people in mind who have not yet trusted in Christ, who don't call themselves Christians or Christ followers or churchgoers, but they would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here, Paul uses the same language that John uses in the opening of his gospel. Evangelist Lee Strobel puts it this way, believe plus receive equals become. That there are these three steps. We have to believe in in who Jesus is as the Son of God, that we have to believe that he really cares about you and me, that, that he really did come to pay the penalty we could never pay. But then we need to get beyond just the, the head knowledge of that to receive God's forgiving grace into our lives. There are many, many people who've been raised in churches and they know all the data about Jesus, but they've never taken that step to receive that forgiveness. We either say, I'm just fine the way I am, you know, don't need that, I'm good with God, you know, or you say, someday I'll get there, but I'm not ready to do that. But it's only when we put those two together that we become children of God who are alive to the Spirit of God and alive to Jesus. Question. Have you, by any chance, been locked in shame because of something in your past? Jesus doesn't want you to stay stuck in that place. The mercy and the patience that he has shown you in your Christian life is designed to be on display so that his mercy shines more than the story of what was hard or difficult or bad or rotten. And so we need to find ways to tell our stories that glorify him. Have you been holding Jesus at arm's distance because you're not sure yet how he will handle your sin and shame? From time to time, there are people who are here in our audience who are kicking the tires and they are wrestling with the information about Jesus, but they're not sure. They're not sure that Jesus really has the capacity to forgive their sins because they're doing such a good job of beating themselves up on the inside. And the shame they carry is just so profoundly deep. I have news for you. Jesus doesn't want you to stay stuck where you are either. Jesus is gentle. No matter what causes you shame, he has more than enough mercy for you. But you need to acknowledge that you need his grace, that you can't do it your own way. Believe plus receive puts you on the pathway to becoming who he wants you to become. So here's what we're learning. Jesus is our hope. He's the anchor that we can trust today, tomorrow, forever. I have to jump to a a different letter for this third lesson about Jesus being our hope. It's that his presence transforms our identity. His presence in our lives transforms our identity. Colossians chapter one, four verses, same author, Paul, 
writing to a different church here, he says, for the sake of the body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages, for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, to the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I chose these verses and was drawn to them because of that phrase at the end. Here we see another aspect where Jesus is our hope. Look at what Paul unveils in this letter to the Colossian church. He speaks of a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. The way he spells that out, it, it's like there's this mystery that we want to get in on. We want to know the secret. We want to we be on the in crowd that finally understands what this mystery was that people in the past couldn't fully apprehend. And then he tells us in that final verse, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Theologically, this is known as the concept of the indwelling of Christ. We need to unpack that a little bit too. Sometimes people use terminology that Jesus came into my heart. I hate to bust your understanding, but there's no little figurine of Jesus that is functionally inside of your physical heart, right? You understand that's a metaphor. It helps us understand that Jesus comes somewhere into the center of our being. But he doesn't physically dwell there. He indwells our life, our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit becomes the presence of God with you forevermore. That once you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you receive this gift of grace that he gives, the mark of God, the down payment of all that is yet to come is the indwelling of Christ through the Holy Spirit. It means that wherever you go, even on your very worst day, even when you start to try and push God away, the indwelling of Christ remains with you. And his spirit calls out to you. Sometimes his spirit will redirect you. No, that's not the right way to go. You're really headed down the wrong path. You'll start to feel miserable. The spirit leads you in a new direction. Yes, I want you to take this step. This is for you. Reach out, risk a little bit, go. I'm behind this. And God's spirit calls to us through this indwelling aspect. This transforms our present because the presence of Jesus is with every Christ follower. You see, a Christian, according to the Bible, is not someone who simply believes in Jesus. There are lots and lots of people who historically believe that Jesus lived and walked the earth, and it makes no difference to them whatsoever. But when you believe in Jesus and you receive him into your life, you now have Jesus. We are not simply people who are believers who believe about Jesus or in Jesus. We are people who have Jesus through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see how different that is? This is wonderful, wonderful stuff. And as Christ indwells, 1 Timothy 1.10 says, we start to avoid whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The Spirit leads us in that direction. And we are drawn toward Doctrine that conforms to the gospel, 1 Timothy 1.11. What does that mean? 
without anybody else judging you or trying to rule over your life, you and I start to get introspective and we look every once in a while at where we're at and how our faith is growing and how Christ is being formed within us. And the more that Christ is being formed within us through his spirit, he's gonna make you uncomfortable about some things that are not in alignment with who Jesus is because Jesus is indwelling you. And he's going to lead you to desire the change that he would bring. You don't have to be controlled. You don't have to be manipulated. You don't even need to have a guide. The Holy Spirit begins to nudge us and push us in those directions. And we want to follow him. We want to become more like him. The indwelling of Christ also transforms our future. This is why Paul wrote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope is in things that are yet to come. And whoever Christ indwells, he transforms and changes and ultimately one day will glorify and we will experience the glory of God on that day when we are united with God in the presence of Jesus, either when the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth at the end, the way Revelation describes, or whether we die short of that time and we are gathered up into his presence and our souls are reunited with him. Jesus is our hope, the anchor we can trust today, tomorrow, and forever. And then one more picture. He provides an anchor for the soul. Paul writes these words, or not Paul, but the author of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's accepted early by the church, but the author of Hebrews says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember we began this message with a story about my dad's boat that had sunk in a storm. Either the boat had slipped its anchor or the storm was so bad that the anchor didn't hold. I don't know which was the case. Here the Bible tells us that Jesus is our anchor for the soul. Not an anchor that holds you back, but an anchor that holds you safe in the storm. And when the storm is over, we can move ahead again. An anchor is meant to keep a, sh keep a ship from crashing into the rocks during a really bad storm. As long as the anchor holds, the ship will be safe and all the people on it. So here, hope for heaven is compared to an anchor. Our hope in Christ accomplishes what a good anchor does. It holds us safe in the storms of life, that even though we get battered, even though times are tough, nonetheless, he is keeping us safe and secure. And then Hebrews 6.20 adds one more thought, that Jesus is our forerunner. That's an interesting term, isn't it? Forerunner. Warren Wiersbe, who led the Moody Church in Chicago during the 1970s, wrote this. The Old Testament high priest was never a forerunner because nobody could follow him into the Holy of Holies. In other words, the innermost part of the temple where God's spirit would come to rest. He goes on, but Jesus Christ has gone to heaven so that one day we may follow. He's our forerunner. Jesus is our hope, the anchor we can trust today, tomorrow, and forever. Charles Spurgeon, back in the 1800s, 
once said, you may think that you can live fine without Christ, but you cannot afford to die without him. So we need an anchor, because there's a storm that's coming for everybody at some point. The Travel Channel carries a television series called Expedition Unknown. It stars a guy named Josh Gates, who's a 21st century explorer. He chases after ancient myths with modern edge, uh, cutting edge technology. His travels, travels often include unconventional lodging places and food that you and I would never eat, you'd never find in a travel guide. You know, kind of like Bear Gryllis, if you ever watched his show. You know, eating strange bugs and things out to survive in, in nature. Sometimes his role requires him to drop into holes in the ground, caves, even crawling under buildings, and very often on this show, he will allow the person he is working with to go first. That's a scary thought because going first can be dangerous. Now contrast that with this. We can rejoice that Jesus always goes on ahead of us. He always goes first. He is the forerunner who blazes the trail in order to allay our fears because Jesus is the ultimate anchor for our souls, the forerunner who dares to go first. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our anchor. And we can trust him today, tomorrow, and forever. So I have a question. Are you trusting in Jesus as your hope? Or are you trusting in something else or someone else? This whole series has been leading up to us exposing how the Bible talks about Jesus as the one hope in the universe that you can trust with your eternity. You do not have a soul. You are a soul, says C.S. Lewis, that happens to be housed in a body. The body will one day pass away. You'll need a new one. But your soul lives on. Who are you trusting with your soul? Maybe it's time you trust him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these words of scripture, ancient nuggets of truth about Jesus that lit the early Christians and the early church on fire as they came to understand the theological importance of the indwelling of Christ and of how he functions as the anchor for our souls. Hear the person who may be saying right now, Lord, I've been holding back. I've trusted you as the savior and forgiver of my sins. Well, most of them. But there's an area of my life I've been holding back on. I didn't know if I could fully trust you but I will because I'm still scared and I still know that I need an anchor that will be sure, firm, and secure in the storm. Here I come, doubts and all, fears intact, knowing it's time for me to trust you more. Lord, hear the person in 
this gathering who may be saying, this is all new to me. And I've come to the realization that I can't save myself, that even the writers of the Bible were sinners, that I'm surrounded by this wonderful collection of colorful sinners, most of whom are saved by grace. And I need that grace too. So I'm trusting you to do what I can't do for myself. Make me whole on the inside. Put me on a new path that makes sense and where I'm aligned with your goals and with God himself. I come doubts and all, trusting you with a little bit of faith that I have, asking you to give me this new life. And Lord, I pray that you will let these seeds of life shine and bear fruit and flourish and to be transformed into something beautiful that in the right time, in the right way, helps somebody else believe and receive eternal life. Thank you for the wonderful things you do in our midst when we open your word and praise you and when we get honest as we've done today. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.